Okay, so today's daf is Pei Bet in Yoma. We are on Pei Aleph Amud Bet, uh, 10 lines from the wide lines, where it says, uh, A person eats inedible food. If a person eats, and it uses the word kas, kas means to chew, uh, meaning that he's eating something inedible. It doesn't use the word achal because it's not something edible. So whenever it talks about eating something that's not technically edible, it's the word kas. Kas pil pelebi yom adikipur. If a person eats pepper on yom kippur, he's exempt because kas zangvila yom adikipur. But also, if he eats zangvil is ginger <coughs> on yom kippur, he's patur. These are considered like spices, yes, but they're things right. So they would be spices, but they're spices that are not eaten. Uh, independently, so it wouldn't be a normal activity. Rashi says, This is not the normal way to eat it. Obviously, people do eat pepper, but nobody pours pepper in their hand and eats it. So, uh, so it would not be considered a normal activity. There is an objection. So this is somewhat from a different context, talking about the mitzvah uh, orla of waiting, uh, you know, not eating the first three years of, uh, of a fruit tree's uh, fruit bearing. We don't eat for the first three years of the fruit. So it says you shall, uh, you shouldn't eat the fruit. It uses the word va'aroltem or latot pirgo. It's like orla. It's like uh, literally uh, like a foreskin of the, of the tree. But then further on, I mean, it mentions that, uh, but before that it says, you will plant any f- tree that is edible, meaning that produces edible fruit. And then it says, you shouldn't eat the fruit for three years. So it says, from the fact, and, you know, it's from the fact that it says not to eat the fruit. Obviously it's a food, it's a food bearing tree. In other words, obviously it's a tree that produces edible fruit if it's telling you not to eat it, right? So why does it have to mention that it's etz machal? Why does it have to make the point that it is a fruit, that, that it's a tree that produces edible fruit if it's already telling you not to eat the fruit? So then obviously we should assume that it means that the, that the tree produces edible fruit. Rather, what is it coming to tell you? Why is it called etz machal? Literally like a tree of food. Why is it called that? Because it's talking about a type of tree where the flavor of the branch and the fruit is the same. Now, I never t- tasted the branch of a tree, but there's some bushes that, you know, the leaves or the branches are edible. They're soft, right? Now, obviously not the bark of, a, um, of an ordinary tree, but the point is that it has the flavor. This is the... Uh, this is the pepper bush, basically. Pilpil pil, comes from a bush. It's like berries of a bush, basically. The pepper is the peppercorns are berries of a bush, and then they dry them and they grind them. So apparently, they have the same taste. The branch, which is soft because it's a bush, is the same taste as the uh, pepper itself. So you see from there, though, there though that what that that you see from that that pepper is obligated in orlam, meaning just like other fruits, you have to wait three years before you partake of the fruit of the tree. So too with, with pepper. It's the same rule. Not only that, but we learn we also learn that Eretz Yisrael is not missing anything. It says nothing will be missing for you in Israel, meaning everything that's, uh, that, that you need will be there, um, including these kinds of uh, special trees where the branches and the uh, fruits are the... Uh, uh, it tastes the same, or including the uh, case of the pepper, that even though it's something that doesn't normally grow in, it doesn't grow in every climate, but it grows uh, in Eretz Yisrael unusually, even though it might not be normally the typical climate where it would grow. The point is that it says there, though, that pepper is a food. That's the main point of bringing this case of Orla is to show you that pepper is considered a food because Orla only applies to food, edible 
things. So how could you say eating pepper on Yom Kippur is not a uh, is not considered eating if we see that it's a food? And the answer is lakashia haber tifta abi veshta. It depends. Are you eating peppercorns that are actually still moist? like berries, so then it's a fruit. But if it's already dried out, like the way that we eat pepper usually is dried out and ground up, that is not the normal way to eat it. That's not going to be considered a normal eating. Amalei Ravina Marimar, Ravina said to Marimar, did Rav Nachman not say, hai himalta da'atem behinduei, that this himalta, which is a certain type of a food that included um, usually uh, had um, was a crushed up different spices. Rashi says that were uh, they also included honey in them. So it says this item that was from India. It says Hindu A. Rashi says Meiratz Kush from Ethiopia, but I think probably it means India, right? From the from the, the sound of the word, it says this food that was brought from there. Sharia, you're allowed to eat it. Umevarchinan alei boipriyadama. It's permitted to eat it and you say Bori Priyadamana. What's the Chidush? Rashi says, first of all, that you might have thought that it was something that because the non-Jews cook it, because it's something that was prepared in Eretz Kush, whatever it is, India or Ethiopia, whatever. I think it's really India. Um, what does it say there? Does it translate as India? Hindu. Right, yeah. So the, uh, yeah, even though it says Eretz Kush, fine. So, yeah. Here it says Ethiopia. Oh, it does? Yeah. No, no, but... Yeah, well, there's, uh, right. It says both seem to be, you know, both seem to be interpretations that are brought. But the idea is that the cooking is not the fact that non-Jew cooked it doesn't is not a problem because it can be eaten raw. And also, we're not worried about no tam. We're not worried about the tam that the the flavor that the vessels of the non-Jews absorbed because it doesn't mix well with the uh, with this particular food. That's one possibility. We have an idea of noten tam lifkam, which means it has two meanings. One is that we, d- we can assume that the pot wasn't used for the past 24 hours and therefore the flavor that it absorbed from other non-kosher things is going to be spoiled anyway. Or it could be that we assume that whatever flavor of, let's say, non-kosher meat or shratzim or whatever wouldn't mix well with the food that, with this particular food, so it wouldn't be considered an, a positive additi- addition. So therefore it's not relevant. The point is that for kashrut reasons, we're not concerned about eating this item. But you see that you're eating, you know, again, you're eating this, uh, these spices that apparently included ginger in it, right? So it says, again, the same answer. In other words, ginger that is moist and still in a state where a person would eat it, like the ginger that comes with the sushi. They didn't have sushi back then, so they didn't know about that, right? But that kind of thing is edible for sure. If you, you eat, that would be considered eating. But dried ginger, like the kind that's added to foods in a powder spice form, that would not be something that you gather in a cup and you eat it. Nobody would eat that, and therefore wouldn't be considered eating on Yom Kippur. So maybe the chidush here is, in a way, that even the same exact food, depending on the condition, could be considered an edible food or, you know, and could be considered a non-edible item at the same time. And even something that you might ingest in a different state, meaning you might pepper your food and then eat it, but you wouldn't eat the pepper. So the eating of the pepper is still not considered an eating in its own right. It's an interesting thing. If you eat the leaves of kanim, uh, it's like uh, um, uh, reeds. In other words, you eat the leaves of the bushes that are not normally eaten, then you're exempt. But if you eat the stalks of the, uh, of the uh, vine, then you are uh, liable. What's considered to be stalks of the vine that is still considered food? Anything which has just begun to bud from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, it just began to form, so then it's still soft. The point is that it's still not hard, and therefore it would still be considered to be edible, because by Yom Kippur, it's only basically less than 10 days old. It's very young, so it's very, still very soft. 
right? However, Rav Kahana said actually you have up to 30 days from when it starts to grow. Um, the 30 days, uh, it's still considered soft enough to, uh, uh, to be edible. And uh, we have a support in the fir- of the first view from Abraita. If you eat the leaves of these reeds, reed plants, you are exempt because they're not food. But if you eat the uh, actual stalks of the vine, you're liable. But only if they're like less than 10 days old. In other words, these branches are considered to be edible only at the very early stages of their growth when they just started to, to develop. But in, uh, once they've become... Um, once they've become hardened, they're not really considered food anymore either, right? So that, the point here is what's considered an edible item. Just ingesting something is not necessarily eating. Now, if a person drank the fish brine or the fish fats that normally are not eaten, they might be added to other things, but they would normally not be eaten on their own, that's for sure, then you're not, then you're not liable. But the implication is that vinegar, you would be liable. If you drink vinegar... It's Rabbi's opinion. Rabbi said that chometz, meaning is uh, vinegar, uh, restores the soul. Meaning people are drinking vinegar, it's a drink. You know, some people, I know people that they drink vinegar. Maybe not every single day. Probably bad for your stomach, I would guess. But uh, I know people that drink it. So he said, yeah, it's uh, not allowed. It's, it's considered uh, food. That's the name of the place he was from. Rav Gidal Bar from this place, said, It's not true what Rabbi said. Vinegar is not considered a drink. Next year, the next year, the next year, everybody took vinegar and drank it on Yom Kippur. They mixed it with some water so that it wasn't so, uh, so that it wasn't so acidic. They drank it. Shabbat of Gidal Vikpad, Rav Gidal was really upset. Amar Eimar, Damri Ana Diavad. I was talking about Bidiavad. If a person drank it, they wouldn't be liable to bring a Kurban Chatar. I didn't say the Chatchila Right? He said that nobody said that I said that you could go drink it. I said Bidiavad Miamre. Who said that I said that? Eimar, Damri Ana Porta, Tuva Miamre. But moreover, I only said a little bit if a person drank it, it's not going to have any effect at negating the fast. I didn't say you could go chug like a lot of uh, vinegar. Definitely not. And moreover, Amre de Amar, right, he says, so he said, Amar de Amre Ana Porta, Tuva Mi Amre, right? Amar de Amre Ana Chai, they said that I told them, Chai, if you drink it straight, but Mazug Mi Amre, whoever said that I would claim that you could drink with it mixed with water. If you dilute it already, you're basically just drinking the water, right? So the point is that you can't drink vinegar on Yom Kippur. Now, the next, now we turn to Peibet Amud Aleph, Atinokot. Now, this is very halachalima. Say, actually, at what age do children have to start observing Yom Kippur in one form or another? Very halachalima. Say, issue here. Huh? Yeah, it's based on this sugya, but it's in particular Yom Kippur is like a big issue because it's a big challenge for kids. So, we don't force the children to fast on Yom Kippur, which is interesting because the Shomronim and some Kara'im also do uh, force their kids to fast on Yom Kippur. And it's one of the things that, the, obviously, according to the Torah Shabbat, was not accepted. You don't force them. Now, the way the Gemara is going to discuss exactly what this means, we train them a year before and two years before. What does it mean a year before and two years before? So, we'll see what the Gemara is going to explain. But bishvil shuragilin b'mitzvot, so that the children will be used to doing the mitzvot. Okay, what does it mean a year before or two years before? Now we obviously know that when a girl turns twelve, which means she completed twelve years, <coughs> then she um, she's obligated min to observe Yom Kippur. And similarly for a boy, once he's completed thirteen years, 
uh, he is obligated to observe Yom Kippur, and that's min ha-Torah. That says nothing to do with chinuch, uh, right? The question is, what does it mean lifnation of lifnation a time a year before or two years before? Okay, so Gemara says hashtab Right, that's the whole question. It says before a year, before two years. So the Gemara says, if you're telling me before before two years, obviously before a year. Meaning, if you're doing this, if you're starting two years before, obviously you're starting a year before. The language is weird. One is talking about a sick person, one is talking about a healthy. In other words, if the child is healthy, he can start training two years before. If the child is, on, is, is weaker, he can start training a year before. Either way, though, the question is a year before what and two years before what? Right? So there we have, so this is what Chisda said, that one is talking about a chole, one is talking about a bari, one is talking about a, uh, a sick, and one is talking about healthy. Now, the way that Rashi... Um, reads this is that when it's talking about a year before, two years before, it means a year or two years before the ye- meaning actually um, it actually means two or three years. It doesn't mean uh, one or two years. Meaning that the 12th year of the girl's life when she's 11 or the 13th year of the boy's life when he is still 12 that goes without saying. And then when it says lifnesh natayim, it means even two years before that, or even a year before that. So meaning the girl would start when she's 10, and the boy would start when he is, uh, when he's 11. That's what, that's how they're going to interpret it at first. We'll see. Now, when the child is eight or nine, meaning they completed their eighth uh, a year or complete their ninth year depending on whether they're chole or like we just said whether they're sick or they're healthy so if they are healthy and strong then when they turn eight if, they're, if they are weaker then when they turn nine we make them observe hours meaning means that we we train them to eat a little bit later on Yom Kippur starting from when they're eight or nine not that they fast but let's say they normally eat breakfast at nine you make them eat when they're at ten or something like that Right? Ben Yud, Ben Yud Aleph, when the child turns 10 again, or 11, again, depending on the health of the child, either 10 or 11, Mashlimin then they have to finish the fast rabbinically. Okay? Ben Yud Bet, Mashlimin Once they turn 12, they have to finish it, Min and that's Bitinoket. Now, not all the Girsaot, not all the manuscripts have the word Bitinoket there, but Rashi does, meaning that's talking about a girl, obviously. A girl has. Her, once she turns 12, she has to keep Yom Kippur min ha-Torah. When she's 11 or 10, depending upon her health, right? She would start completing the fast mid-Rabbanan, ben yudu ben yudalef, right? When she's 10 or 11. And then when she's either 8 or 9, she would start observing a mini fast. Not really, like making breakfast a little bit later. That's, that's about it, right? In the morning. Rav Nachman Amar Ben Tet Ben Yud No, when the child is nine or ten, we start training them by eating breakfast a little bit later. Ben Yud Adolf Ben Yud Bet Mashlim Midorabanan. Eleven and twelve, they have to complete the fast rabbinically and Ben Yud Gimel Mashlim Midoraita. Once they turn thirteen, they finish it Midorah Betinok, and that's talking about a, bi- a, a boy. In other words, according to this, a boy has, when he's 13, of course, has to keep the fast min ha-Torah. Two years before that, he should finish the fast, but that's only mid banan and depending on whether he is healthy or not so healthy, he would do that either two years or one year. And then two years or one year before that, he would have, um, he would have a later breakfast. So meaning a weak child, basically, at 10 years of, when the child is, uh, is, is uh, at 10 or 11, um, when the child is 10, he would start to uh, have a later breakfast, right? And then when he's 11, later breakfast. And then when he's 12, 
he would uh, he would complete the fast midrabanan. A child that was stronger, when he was nine, he could already start doing a later breakfast. Ten later breakfast. Eleven. Uh, complete the fast and 12 complete the fast. In other words, three or four years, basically, it's going to come out prior to the uh, actual fast. And, and w- that was with a boy. Rav, when I was talking about a girl, so there also, you could have either starting at eight and nine, you do a partial fast, 10 and 11, you do a full fast, depending if the girl is healthy. And if she's weaker, then nine and 10, she would do uh, just a delayed breakfast. And then, tw- and then when she's 11, she would complete the fast. And then when she's 12, she has to complete the fast, minatoa. So that would be three, or, according to both Rav Huna and Rav Nachman, there's either three or four years of preparation. So when it says, so it means is talking about before they start keeping the full fast. Right? Do, do they start keeping the full fast? I mean, the Gemara is going to explain how it exactly fits with the Mishnah, the word a year or two years, because according to them, they're actually doing three or four years. But it's of when they start completing the fast. They start completing the fast at when they're 12, right? The, let's say the weak child. But two years before that, he's going to end up keeping the fast, uh, you know, doing the later breakfast. We'll see. Yomara, we'll see. We don't force the kids. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll get to that. We're going to get to that. But let's, because it's going to be so confusing already that we're just going to summarize that at the end. Now it says, We never make the child complete the entire fast. Rather, what does he say? Ben Yud, Ben Yud Alev, Mechanchinoto, Lishaot. 10 or 11, he just trains with a later breakfast. Ben Yud Bet, when he's 12, that's obviously talking about a girl. In other words, according to that, you only start at 10 or 11 and uh, you go doing a later breakfast. And then when the girl turns 12, she completes the fast Midiraita. Right? So the, the, the question is, according to him, so uh, how exactly, according to all of them, exactly fitting that in with the Mishnah of what's, what it means is going to be the challenge. Okay? But the, we'll, we'll see how the Gemara unfolds this. Now it says, um, oh, I skipped part, right? So it said in the, in the Mishnah that we don't force the children to observe the fast, but we train them a year or two before. So the thing is like this. And what should that say? Right, right, so it makes sense according to Rav Huna and Rav Nachman because they would say that when it, that basically the way that it works is that a year before, right, before they start completing the fast, Midrabanan, they, in other words, when the girl, let's say, is 11, okay, she has to complete it, Midrabanan. So a year before that, she should keep it, meaning just skipping breakfast or making breakfast later. That's two years before she's tar- starting Delraita, meaning when she's, when she's 10, she should start making breakfast later. That's two years before she actually has a Delraita obligation, but it's one year before she has a Durabanan obligation because when she turns 11, she has a Durabanan obligation to finish the fast. That's how they'll explain it with a chole, with a sick child. In other words, it'll fit. The Mishnah will fit if we're talking about the sick child because there's a year or two years in advance. It's a year in advance if you're looking at the first time she's going to complete the fast, which is when she's 11. It's two years in advance if you're looking at the first time that she's going to complete the fast biblically when she's 12. Okay? That's, the, that's how they'll read the Mishnah. So then the Mishnah fits with them, right? Because they will say that whether you're talking about a boy or you're talking about a girl, they basically agree on the same logic that the year before um, they have to complete the fast and a year before that 
for the weak child, he's going to, uh, he's going to have to make the, uh, the partial fast. That's, that they both agree upon, right? Now the, um, however, the, uh, but, but Rabbi Yochanan, and according to, and, and if you look at the, the Gra explains a little bit here. He says, according to this, according to this interpretation, when the Mishnah says you prepare them a year before, two years before, the Gra says, he uncharacteristically actually gives a whole commentary here. He says, it's not talking about the beginning of the time that you train them. It's talking about how long you train them. In other words, you train them either until a year before their biblical obligation. That's what it means, lifneshana, until a year before their biblical obligation, right? Right, or until two years before the biblical obligation, meaning that you're giving them uh, two years that they have to complete the fast. Right, that's that's the way that the Gra interprets it. That it means either you're training them, meaning you're doing the partial fast. He's not giving a rabbinical status to the eleventh year. He's saying, he's saying, how do you fit it to the words shanan shnatayim, the one year and the two years? So he's saying, what it means is you do it until a year before their biblical obligation. The biblical obligation for a girl is at twelve years old. That's it. That's fixed. When do you start the training? That's what I'm saying. He's saying that according. We're only saying this according to Rav Huna and Rav Nachman. This is not necessarily Alachalimasa, so don't get confused yet. Right? Meaning until. When it says lifnei shanat, means until a year before the biblical obligation, right? Right. Right. It's not talking about from when. It's just saying you do it until a year before the biblical obligation, and it's not mentioning from when, right? Or you do it until two years before the biblical obligation. You do what until? You do the partial. You do the shaot. They're saying mechanchin means just doing the partial fast. Right, that's how they're interp- That's how he's saying that they're interpreting the Mishnah. That it means until a year or until two years before the biblical obligation. Okay, so uh, so that would mean um, that's why he has the Fneishanale Divrehen and the Fneishanale Divrehen. He doesn't have like what the Bach says. Right, he says he said he doesn't have the Deoraita. Right, he has the Rabbanan because he's saying that what they mean is the partial fast is until either a year or two years before they have a biblical fast. Because either for a year or two years they have to complete the fast, Rabbanan. Right? So that, that's how he's interpreting it. He's saying that there's a difference between saying Mashlimin Midrabanan, finishing Midrabanan, and saying, uh, and the partial hours. The partial hours is what it means in the Mishnah that you do it until a year or two years before the biblical obligation because in the year and two years before the biblical obligation they have to do a full thing. That's the way the Gra is interpreting it. Okay? And the ba- others are obviously not interpreting it that way but that's how he's reading it. But according to Rabbi Yochanan it's difficult because according to Rabbi Yochanan Rabbi Yochanan just said before that, uh, that we, all we have according to Rabbi Yochanan is we never have to finish the fast completely before you're obligated to write according to him. He said, all you have is ben yud, yud and Ben Yud Aleph mechanchinot o l'sha'ot that for the, when he's 10 or 11, meaning when a girl really is 10 or 11, she just has to do a partial fast and then when she turns 12, she has to do a full fast, right? So the question is, mai shana oshtai, right? So why does it say a year or two according to Rabbi Yochanan? Um, and Rashi says, lo klal. Our Mishnah won't work according to Rabbi Yochanan. Why? Because we, he said that there's no time that you have to finish the fast midoraita, right? You never have to. So therefore, he says, you can't say, there's not going to be a way that, uh, uh, that, that you're going to be able to read the Mishnah according to him because he's going to have to say, Rabbi Yochanan is going to have to say, the bari says, 
right? He says uh, that he's, he's going to have to say two years for the, uh, for the healthy and, and one year for the sick, right? So, but, so the Gemara says, Samuch lepirkan. He's going to say, it doesn't mean, Rashi explains, it doesn't mean like the way Rav Unan and Rav Nachman were saying that there's really even more years. In other words, it's one year before and two years before. That was how they were reading it. It's one year before and then another two years before. Not like that. Rather, what it means is that either one year or two years before. The Deoraita. That's how he's interpreting it. In other words, according to Rav Hunan Rav Nachman, you're going back way more than one or two years. Because according to Rav Hunan Rav Nachman, you're at the very least having one year that you have to have a full fast, sometimes two years, and then before that, one or two years of, uh, you know, of, of training, right? As many as four years. Right, so could mean a year before the year they complete the fast of Midrabanan, or maybe even two years before they start completing the fast of Rabbanan. Okay, so they, they could be three or four years. According to Rabbi Yochanan, no, 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 it's either one or two years of even the partial fast from the time of the Deoraita. In other words, the way that Rabbi Yochanan is reading it is, we're, the Mishnah is talking about the Deoraita obligation of the fast. Meaning that 12 years old for the girl, 13 for the boy. A year before that, they have to start making breakfast later. Or two years before that, if they're strong enough. So for the girl, when she's 10 and 11, later breakfast, if she's healthy enough. If she's, if, right, right, there's no full fast to Rabban according to Rabbi Yochanan. According to Rav Nachman and Rav, uh, and, and Rav Huna, they were saying, first of all, a year or two years, they have to complete the fast as practice. Right? Depending on how healthy. And then a year or two years before that, in other words, if the child is, is not healthy, so you know, then it's going to be less. But if the, if, a year or two years before that, meaning starting from as early as eight years old for the girl, eight and nine, she's going to have to do a partial fast, and then 10, 11, she's going to have to do a full fast, dirabanan. And, and for a boy, it would be a year later than that, nine and 10, right? And then 11 and 12. You would have to do a full fast, dirabanan. So they are actually saying, that, um, that it would either be three or four years that you could go back in terms of extending the chinuch. According to Rabbi Yochanan, it's never more than two years and it's never for the full fast. So that's where it becomes complicated because what are you counting from? Are you counting from the first time that they do the full fast, even midir Rabbanan, or you're counting from when they're going to do it midir Raita? Right? According to Rabbi Yochanan, it's simple. All you have is full fast and partial fast. One year or two years of partial fast before. According to them, you have one year or two years of full fasting midirabanan, and then before that, one year or two years of partial fasting. So it could go back as much as four years from the actual deoraita, according to them. Okay, now we say like this. Uh, uh, now it says, It says that we don't torture, we don't afflict the children on Yom Kippur. We train them a year or two before their maturity. So that makes perfect sense according to Rabbi Yochanan. That's exactly what he said. If the boy is 13, then when he's 12 or maybe even 11, he just does a partial fast. That's what exactly what it's saying. But we don't force them to do a full fast. Right? So, but, but according to Rav Hunan, Rav Nachman, that it's at least three years that you're going back. Right? Maybe even four years. Right? So according to them, how are they going to fit that with this Braita? So they will say, so they, so they will say, Amrelach, Rabbanan, they'll say to you, My chinuch nami dekatani ashlama. When it says a year or two, it means a year or two before the first time they finish the full fast. 
That's what it means. The first time I finished the whole fast. Do we really call that type of training? In other words, would that training refer to completing the fast? If the child usually eats at, um, in the morning at 8 o'clock, we feed him at 9 o'clock. If he usually eats at 9, we feed him at 10. They'll tell you there's two meanings of the word chinuch, and this is where the difficulty becomes. In other words, according to Rav Nachman and Rav Huna, there's two kinds of chinuch. There's the chinuch where we actually train the child to fast, the full fast, and there's the chinuch where we're doing the partial fast, right? Right, yeah, there's two levels of training. Right, that's also training. Right, they say there's two kinds of training. So depending upon the level of the child, you're going to have a longer period of training. A very strong child could start even, you know, four years ahead of time, starting to do a partial fast, year one, partial fast, year two, and then two years of full fasting. Or a weaker child might do two years of... Uh, partial fasting, 11, you know, when he's 10 and when he's 11, a partial fasting. And then when he's 12, we'll do the complete fasting. So they're saying that one or two years that it's talking about is the one or two years where they're doing partial fasting, but that there's always going to be at least one year of a full fast prior to the, uh, prior to the official fast when they're bar, bar mitzvah. That's a given, right? There could even be two years of that if the child is strong. So depending on how you're calculating it, in other words, if you're, they'll just explain anytime it says one or two years, it's saying with reference to the point of reference is to the first year that they complete the fast, even though it's only Midrabanat. And when it says three or four years, they're talking about, they're talking about with reference to the first time that they complete the fast, Deoraita. Rabbi Yochanan is just saying, no, whenever it's talking, it's always talking about relative to the Deoraita. So if it says one or two years, it means one or two years of just skipping breakfast. Now the Shulchan Aruch actually codifies according to, not technically according to any of these interpretations, because we've been going according to Rashi's interpretation here, but that the halacha is that the Rambam brings Shuchan Aruch is that a child that is 11 um, always should complete the, uh, the girl or boy should always complete the uh, fast. So the girl actually has one year of training because she's 11, she's supposed to do Hashlama Midra Banan and then she starts Midra when she's 12. And then a boy... Um, has two years of training. That's what the, I mean, I guess that is, that's, that, that opinion is the opinion for the bari, for the healthy child of Rafuna and Rav Nachman here, right? That they, they train by, um, by doing a, uh, they don't have an idea of the girl ever doing it for two years of training. That's what the Rambam and Shulchan Aruch do not bring that. They bring one year of training for the girl, 11, meaning everyone should be fasting the full fast at 11, according to Shulchan Aruch. And then at 12, also everybody should be fasting the full fast, except that the girl is doing it there, right? And the boy is doing it there, Rabbanat. Right now, a lot of the poskim, later poskim said, well, nowadays, kids are weak. We are very weak. We are not healthy. We are not strong. We don't make them do a full fast because they're too weak. They're not strong enough. But I had all my kids do it and they all survived. And the ones that didn't, nobody knows it, but nobody left to tell about it. So that was, so that was okay. It was, turned out okay. Now, so that, but that's, that's the conclusion, okay? That's the halachalim. In other words, no, Sha'ot is the two years before that. In other words, when they are, ten, when they are nine and ten, uh, start to do the Sha'ot uh, if they're strong enough. I mean, they should be. Um, any kid can eat breakfast a little bit later, I think, at that age um, and understand that it's Yom Kippur. And then at, uh, my kids, they all started doing Hashlamat 11. And, uh, and at 12, the boys did Hashlamat. And then when they, you know, 12 or 13, they started doing a full fast and they were okay. I mean, I, it depends on the child. If a child is weak or has health problems, obviously you have to be lenient. And there are many post-game, like the Mishnah Barah says, oh, nowadays, that, he's talking about in Europe where they barely had any food. So, uh, you know, they said that we're not healthy enough for the kids to do any complete fasting before they absolutely have to. So therefore we don't do it. I don't think that that's really such an issue today. I haven't found it. 
I'm very what? What they say is healthy one week is the next week is unhealthy. So, you know, I ne- we never really know. But uh, huh? The, yeah, it seems like the kids should eat dinner with you when you fake the house. Why do they have to eat after the Kol Nidre? Then nobody should be hungry at that time. They should, the kids, 10, 11 o'clock, they, they eat at the, with you. Yeah, they should eat and drink at the dinner. You're eating at, let's say, 6, 7 o'clock, whatever, at the dinner before Yom Kippur. That should be enough. They shouldn't have to eat at night. And then by the next day, the question is making them eat uh, breakfast an hour later, two hours later, just to show that it's Yom Kippur. No, no, only starting eight or nine years old. Yeah, yeah. Says before that you should right, they don't understand the concept of it. And they're, and they're also not healthy enough to do that. But once they're eight or nine years old, sometimes they'll eat breakfast late, they wait till 10, 11 o'clock, have brunch on Sunday, you know. So they, the people do that all the time. What's the problem to do it on Yom Kippur? Anyway, now the Mishnah says, If a pregnant woman smells food and she starts to feel uh, that she's going to miscarry, so they, they feed her until she restores her, uh, uh, you know, she, till she's calm. A sick person, we feed him according to the advice of the experts. The Gemara is going to discuss this a lot. If there's no doctor around, then based on the testimony of the person himself who says he needs to eat, we give him until he says it's enough. In other words, if a person has a sense that they're in danger, we trust their internal sense that they need to eat. I didn't hear you. That's what it's going to talk about. Not Nefesh Bemto. Marat Namsho. It's himself. Right? Tanu Rabbanan. Oba Hashem B'Sar Kodesh. Oba Chazir. Let's say a woman is pregnant and she smells, um, she smells a korban cooking and it smells so good. Or she smells bacon cooking. Tochavin la kush we, we dip a little bit in the, in the, like the broth of the uh, thing and we bring it to her. Yeah, we put it on her mouth. Psychologically, if that calms her down, then we give her the actual sauce itself, not just a, not just a putting it on her mouth, but we feed it to her the the broth. If that's not enough, we feed it to herself. Even though we're feeding the woman bacon or feeding the woman besar uh, kodesh, uh, it's okay because save life. The only exceptions we know are idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder. How do we know that idolatry, you have to... You don't know, but it's, uh, she's saying that she needs it. What? If she wants it and you give it to her, then it's her sin. What's, why is it my problem? She's saying that she feels that she's going to lose her baby from it. She's baby. Obviously, she's not just saying, I'm hungry, could you please give me bacon? Then, then you just tell her no. That's, it's talking about Pigoch Nefesh situation. Of the baby. Yeah, of the baby, of the baby, yeah. So, um, so, so it says, How do we know? What does it mean, It says, You should love Hashem with all your soul and all your might. It sounds like the same thing. All your soul, all your might. What's the difference? There are some people that they care more about their health than their money. Right? That's why it says uh, your soul. There are some people that their money is more valuable to them than their life. In other words, it's saying that you should be willing to give all that you have for the love of Hashem, whether it is money or life. It's like the, the, the old joke, you know? The robber said, your money or your life? And he doesn't answer. And he says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. You know? 
Anyway, anyway, uh, how do we know about sexual immorality and murder? Because it says, when a woman is raped, it says, just like a man, I mean, we don't punish the woman, even if she's a married woman, but she is assaulted by somebody. We don't punish her for that because it's like someone who gets murdered. We don't punish the victim for what happened. She was, you know, it's the same thing. Right, so what do we learn from a murderer to the, uh, to, to the case of the woman who was assaulted. We learn both ways. We learn something in both directions from this connection. How so? Just like if a person is running after someone to kill them, you're allowed to intervene and even kill the, uh, the uh, you know, attempted murderer, the person who's pursuing someone to kill them. Allowed to stop them. Right, the, the same thing. What? Right, but even if it's not to you, the point is. Uh-huh. Meaning self-defense, we know, but even to someone else. If you see someone running after a married woman to assault them, you're also allowed to, uh, to do the same, right? right? And just like we know murder, you have to give up your life before committing the sin. The same is true about a person who is being you know, compelled to commit some kind of a sexual immorality that he should give up his life first. And it happens to be a fact that many... Uh, People, the Nazis did that, and many other. Um, you know, if you look at all the uh, the warfare that's going on in Africa and all that, where they say they try to uh, force mothers to have relations with the son and force brothers, and so they try to like humiliate them by forcing them to commit incest and things like that. Yeah, it's a very common thing to do it. That they, you know, in order to uh, like persecutors would do that to oppress people, to humiliate them and shame them and all that. It's done. So, so it says you have to give up your life first. I didn't hear. Right, Rashi says here, that's what Rashi says here, that, that it, is, it doesn't say that the woman would have to, because she's passive in the, in the action. So she's a, she's a pure victim, she's passive in the action. That's how they explain um, Esther, for example, that she was, you know, she was a passive victim. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't initiating. How do we know about the murderer himself? And that's what this whole long tosfot is about, by the way. The whole issue about um, under what circumstances does the Yareg Vali Avor of sexual immorality apply? That long tosfot on size is talking about that. Now, um, it says, how do we know that murder, you give up your life before doing it? It's logic, because so somebody came in front of Rava and it says it should be Rabba with a hey. Amarli, Amarli, Mori, Durai. So he said that, uh, that the, uh, the leader of the um, place that I live, right? Mori Durai means the, the, the governor of uh, wherever I live, right? He said to me, you have to murder so and so. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Right? So what did Rabbah say to him? Said, you should rather be killed than kill somebody else. How do you know that your blood is redder? It's a famous, this is a very famous Gemara that appears in a number of places. Maybe his blood is redder. Now Rashi explains it in a very interesting way. Um, I, I, it, almost like explaining the philosophy behind this, this logic. He says, he says that... Uh, the reason why, in general, you're allowed to violate a commandment for v'chai bahem, because you're going to save your life, right? He says, Hashem says, life is more precious to me than the mitzvot, so I want, to say, I want your life to be saved. So he says, therefore, break the mitzvah and let this person live, because their life is more valuable. So here, okay, so you're talking about, maybe it would be, I don't know, but it doesn't really, 
that's what it sounds like from Rashi, but yeah. But he, I'm not sure that that's halacha. But he says, Israel It says here that the Jewish person is going to be killed anyway, and the mitzvah is going to be negated. In other words, in another case where it's a matter of if I save my life, nobody's going to die. Only the mitzvah will be canceled out, right? Meaning only the mitzvah will be violated by my breaking the uh, breaking the mitzvah. Okay, my life will be saved. What? He's saying, he he's saying in other, right, in other cases where you save your life by breaking a mitzvah, okay. your life is saved. Here, I can't justify it because if I break the mitzvah, someone's going to die. In other words, I'm killing somebody anyway. That is the avirah that I'm doing. So it's not like, okay, if you eat on Yom Kippur, Hashem says, okay, your life is more valuable than the mitzvah not to eat on Yom Kippur. So therefore, I want you to live and, not eat, on, and eat on Yom Kippur. And, and your life is more valuable than Shabbat. So I want you to break Shabbat, your life will be saved. But here, what's the, what are you going to say? I want you to violate the prohibition of murder so that your life will be saved. Yeah, but somebody else's life is going to be destroyed. So that doesn't, doesn't make sense. Right. Right, you have to actually do it, right? But in all cases, you're violating something in order to save your life, is the point, right? He says, therefore, right? In other words, it's, it's just interesting the way that Rashi is formulating it. He's saying, normally, a mitzvah is very valuable and life is very valuable. So we say, oh, break the mitzvah, save life. But in, a, in this case, break the mitzvah is also going to kill somebody. So why should you break the mitzvah? He's saying you shouldn't break the mitzvah because you don't have the justification that it's going to preserve life because another person is going to die. That's another, right, right. So that we know that from Masachat and that you can't do that either. But that's what I'm, but that actually fits with what Rashi is saying because Rashi is saying the only reason Hashem allows you to break a mitzvah is because it's going to preserve life. Once you're going to kill somebody anyway, then how can you justify Doing the sin. So it's almost like he's going beyond the logic. Because the logic that usually people quote this Gemara, they say, oh, what it means is, logically, if you're, someone's going to die anyway, how can you decide who's going to die? Rashi's saying something different. It's not about how can you decide who's going to die. It's what justifies you breaking a mitzvah to save a life is that nobody's going to die. And in this case, there's no justification for breaking the mitzvah. Now it says, Once a lady smelled food on Yom Kippur, Okay, they came from Rabbi Amarlu who said to them, go whisper in her ear, don't tell her that it is Yom Adikipur, it's Yom Kippur. They told her, and she was okay with that, she was okay, she, she didn't eat. In other words, she was getting delirious from the hunger, and, uh, and they told her it's Yom Kippur, she was calm. They said about her, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. In other words, they said, whatever baby is in there, because you didn't eat on Yom Kippur, he's going to be a tzaddik. Just like it said to Yirmiyahu, before I, before you were, when you were in, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Meaning it's going to be a good child. Rabbi Yochanan. Who came out? Rabbi Yochanan. So obviously, because his mom didn't eat on Yom Kippur. Now, what happened? But in another case, in a case with Rabbi Chanina, same, similar situation, the woman said, I'm hungry on Yom Kippur. He said to them, you should tell her it's Yom Kippur. She was not satisfied. She still wanted to eat. She insisted on eating. And therefore, it says, uh, the, um, the wicked are cast out from the womb. Right? Meaning, the, uh, here it's using the word Zoru, meaning from Zarim. Nasu Zarim. They became strangers to Hashem. And who, meaning that they cut from the Rechem, also from the womb. And what does it mean? Nafak Mina Shabtai This was a person, Shabtai, who used to uh, cause the, uh, the prices in the market to be exorbitant and he would price gouge. He would price gouge in the market. In other words, he was a very, a very corrupt guy, came out of this mother, and they're saying, what it shows you is that 
Yom Kippur is, you know, the, the fact that the woman in one case couldn't resist uh, eating on Yom Kippur has an effect on the child. In the case of Rabbi Yochanan's mother, the fact that she resisted uh, also had an effect on the child. Of course, you can interpret that, you know, you can interpret that in many ways. You can interpret that as meaning that the mother who didn't eat on Yom Kippur because she recognized the Kiddushah of Yom Kippur, that just showed something about the quality of the mother to begin with. That she was a person who had such a sense of the sanctity of Yom Kippur. She hears it's Yom Kippur, that's enough for her not to eat. Whereas the other woman, even though she heard it was Yom Kippur, her sense of the sanctity of Yom Kippur was not sufficient for that to hold her back and therefore that affects her child as well. So it doesn't have to necessarily mean somehow in the magic of eating on Yom Kippur affected the child could also mean that the it, it's a different level of mother, the mother who would respond just to being aware that it's Yom Kippur and say, yeah, what am I thinking? Of course I can't eat on Yom Kippur. And then another one who eats anyway, um, it's a different levels of, of motherhood. So we'll continue here tomorrow. Okay,